Well, good morning and happy new year. Hope 2019 is off to a good start. Um, Church is a good place to be honest. How many people have already broken their resolution? Anyone want to own that yet? Okay, a couple of you. Hopefully, not too many of you, but uh, it's part of New Year's, right? Well, hey, uh, part of the New Year, too, is we are getting into our new sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians. So actually flip to 1 Corinthians, put your finger in that, and then flip over to Acts 18. We're actually going to spend a couple minutes in Acts 18 here uh, to start. But as we get into uh, this new sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians... Let me just take a moment and lay out for you where we're going to be heading for the next year or so with respect to the preaching calendar. Uh, We'll spend roughly the next four months in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, And then when we finish that in early May, we'll do two weeks in the book of Jude. Uh, And then uh, on the other side of Memorial Day, we'll begin the book of Job. So this summer is going to be kind of a downer uh, as we move through the book of Job. Uh, And then in the August, September, we're going to get into John's gospel, and that will run us well well into the spring of 2020, which is crazy that we're talking about 2020, uh, and it's just not that far out. But for the next four months, uh, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians, and I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about the book as a whole and, and, and why Paul is writing this letter uh, and some of that, and then we'll get to the specific texts that God has for us this morning. But the book of 1 Corinthians can really be divided into two major sections. In chapters 1 through 6, Paul is responding to this report that comes from Chloe's people. And we see that in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 11. And over the first six chapters, he's dealing with all of these different items that have come up in this report from Chloe and her people. And then in chapters 7 through 16, he's responding to a letter that was written to him uh, from the church dealing with a host of different issues that is going on uh, in the Corinthian church. And the book of 1 Corinthians, it addresses a slew, a host of different issues, a number of which, in fact, most, if not all of which, are current and contemporary issues that you and I see uh, today in our lives. Uh, For example, if you were to read 1 Corinthians, it almost feels as if it was written in a contemporary context. Because Paul's going to talk about the necessity of gospel proclamation. He's going to talk about division in the church. He's going to talk about sexual ethics. He's going to define marriage. Uh, He's going to deal with spiritual gifts and idolatry and the resurrection. All things that are very much uh, prevalent and pressing in your life and in my life today. And so the book of 1 Corinthians actually has a lot to say to God's people with respect to how we live and how it is that we're to interact with one another. But we see the roots of the church being planted in Acts 18, and that's why I asked you to flip there to begin with. In fact, I want to read the first 11 verses of Acts 18 to give us a little bit of context and understanding around the Corinthian church. And this is on Paul's second missionary journey. Here we go, Acts 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And then listen to what he says next. Here's why they're in Corinth. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now we know that Aquila and Priscilla are going to become uh, key players in the church in Corinth and, and in the church in general. But they find themselves there. They've been displaced by the emperor. 
And if nothing else, if you look at these first two verses of 1 Corinthians 18, don't discount, loved one, your current struggle, your current hardship, the displacement uh, that God has going on in your life, because it may, in fact, be a part of God's movement to accomplish his sovereign purposes. They were kicked out of their home, and now they find themselves in Corinth trying to make a new life, and God did some great things in and through them. It goes on, Luke goes on and tells us at the end of verse 2, and, and he, Paul, went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so here's Paul, this was his custom, he would go to a new city, he'd show up at the synagogue, and he'd begin to reason with the Jews that Jesus was in fact the Christ. Look at how it goes. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent. That's a really significant phrase that we see next. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And then what's interesting in these next couple of verses is Luke chronicles some of the Jews that leave with Paul and go to the church. Verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And so what started as Paul's engagement of the Jewish people in the synagogue eventually moves to him engaging uh, the Gentiles in the community, which probably is part of the explanation of just some of the wild and crazy things that we see in the book of 1 Corinthians, because a lot of these people weren't steeped and rooted in, in Jewish faith and Jewish uh, religious and ceremonial understanding, uh, but were pagans. And so when we think about the book of 1 Corinthians, that there's no shortage of issues. There's no shortage of failures. There's no shortage of shortcomings that characterize this church. And, but I got to tell you, when I think about this book, and I don't say this to be funny, I legitimately mean this, I find the book of 1 Corinthians to be oddly encouraging for that very reason. That it is such a messed up and broken and dysfunctional church. Because in the midst of that... God's working within them, and God is working through them. And so it gives me hope that any church, as messed up and as broken and as dysfunctional as it could be, that God can be at the work, at work in the midst of that. Because you could argue that 1 Corinthians captures the power of the gospel in ways that, that, that many of the other epistles don't. And part of what we see in 1 Corinthians is really the, the, the grittiness of the gospel as it's working out in the lives of God's people. And what will become crystal clear to us is that it's not so much about what you and I do, but instead what Christ has accomplished for us and does for us. And it becomes beautiful to watch this unfold in the midst of this mess. And so we've titled the series, Messy, Messy, Messy Church. Uh, because this church, much like our church, much like any church, is in fact a messy church. And the Corinthians are struggling with a lot of the same things that you and I struggle with. They're struggling with cultural influences. They're struggling with items in their past. They're struggling with loving the, the things of the world too much and God too little. 
And yet God's moving and working in the midst of that. God has a word for them in the same way that God has a word for you and I, loved ones. And so as we move from this idea of 1 Corinthians as a whole, I want us to move more specifically to the text that God has for us here this morning. The first nine verses of chapter 1, which is often the, the, the Paul's greeting and his thanksgiving. Often this is a text that we tend to just gloss over or run through. And yet as I begin to study, it's like, man, there's so many just rich and profound things in the text that we would do well to spend an entire week unpacking all that God has for us here. And so as we think about these nine verses, let me really, by way of introduction, move us into the specific text by having you think about the ocean for a minute. Think about the ocean, and more specifically, I want you to think about the waves of the ocean. So being on the coast, and maybe you like to watch them, or maybe you're like me, I love to play uh, in the water, I love to play in the waves, uh, swim in them, surf, uh, bodyboard, whatever it may be, uh, in the ocean. I think one of the things I love about the ocean and playing in the waves is the sheer power and the overwhelming force that they carry. So you, you ever found yourself where you get caught up in a wave and all of a sudden you're like, why is my head in the sand and where is the top? And you, you ever been there? Like, come on, you ever been there? Uh, and, and in one sense, it's, it's kind of fun. In another sense, it's a little bit terrifying. And I think that same feeling, that same sentiment is, is an apt description of what we see in these first nine verses. That part of what Paul is describing to the, the Corinthian church is the sheer power of God. But additionally, as he talks about the work of Christ and what he's done for us, as it washes over us, it overwhelms us, it, it carries us in some really powerful and profound ways. And what I want you to keep in mind, consider this, that most of the book of 1 Corinthians is a stern rebuke from Paul to this church. There, there is very little time that he's buddying up to them going, hey, guys, I'm so proud of you. Most of this is just think of a parent disciplining their child. It's firm, it's stern, it's rebuke. And yet where he starts is this wonderful, tender, gracious reality of what Christ has done. And so I think what God's word has for us this morning is this, is that we're called into God's community through Christ's work. And really, this is the beauty of the gospel. The emphasis not on the failure of the Corinthians, but the sufficiency and the grace of Christ. And so let's read uh, verses 1 through 9. I'll tell you what, this morning, why don't we stand? Uh, we don't do that all that often, but this is a short text. It's a great text for us to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. I uh, would encourage you to follow along. As I read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. This is God's word for us loved ones. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And I want you to notice as we read these verses, notice how many times he's, he mentions the name of Christ and the accompanying work that comes with it. Let me start again with verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any, in any, in any gift 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Loved ones, why don't you take a seat? And I encourage you to pray with me as we ask the Spirit to have his way with us here this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Fathers, we come before you. We thank you for your wonderful word. God, I think of uh, this text and, and that imagery of waves just washing over us in the power and the magnitude and the force and being carried up by it. And we pray that your word would do that here this morning. That we would be carried not simply by your word, but by the truths uh, that your word is proclaiming to us. God, that we would be captivated by the greatness and the richness and the profound glories that are in Christ. And God, not only for us, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And so God, we pray uh, for Cedar Springs Church and for my friend Grant Blankenship. God, I thank you for that brother and that friend. And we pray that you'd be working in his church uh, to bring honor and glory to you, that you would be uh, lifted high in and amongst that body of believers in the same way that we would ask that you'd be lifted high here at Faith Church. And so, God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts that want to know and understand and are seeking all that you would have for us? So, Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We ask you to come and do the work that only you can do in and amongst your people. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message is Called Into God's Community. Uh, called Into God's Community, really two things, uh, two, two main ideas in the text. One is Paul's greeting uh, to the church, and the other is Paul's thanksgiving, uh, really, to Christ for the church. Uh, but when you look at the greeting, uh, one of the things you'll notice is, is Paul references multiple times this calling that comes from God. And so this idea of being called into God's community, I just wrote this down for verses 1 through 3 that we embrace our call from God, that you and I, loved ones, are to embrace God's call for us. And I want you to notice a handful of different things that you and I are called to. And I also want you to notice that this is not something that we do, but that God is doing this to us or for us. He's inviting us to be a part of this. And so three things with respect to embracing our call from God. First of all, look at verse 1. Understand that you are called to a role. You and I are called to a role. Here's what God's word says. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Right? It references Paul's apostolic calling. This wasn't something that Paul sought out. This isn't something that he was after. This isn't something like, oh man, how can I become an apostle? No, no. God was saying, hey, here's what you're going to do. This is what I've called you to. And Paul realizes that God has called him to this role. And the same is true for you and I. That God has called you, God has called me, God has called us to a role. Now, no, God has not called you and I to be apostles. Uh, that, that, that has ceased. But God has called to each and every one of us to roles within his kingdom. And so in a generic sense, right, in a generic sense, all of us are called to a number of different things as followers of Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus in all things. We're called to share the gospel. We're, we're called to serve the body of Christ. We're called to utilize the giftings that God has put into us. But more specifically, right, where God places you, the gifting that God has put into you, that God has given you a role and he's calling you to fulfill that role. 
role that God calls each of his people into a distinct role within his kingdom. And in calling us to that role, he bestows responsibility on us to fulfill that role, to do that role. And we need to take that seriously. There's no shortage of examples of this throughout the scriptures. Here's one. If you were to go to Acts 6, remember what's going on in Acts 6? The apostles and the 12, they talk about we've been given over to a ministry of prayer and of the word, but there's this dispute that's, that's breaking out between different groups of widows, and some widows are being served and some widows aren't being served or they think they're getting shortchanged. And so this dispute comes up and they come to the 12. And the 12 go, hey, you know what? This actually isn't the, the, the role that God has called us to. And so they appoint some other guys, uh, seven, many who would argue are the first seven deacons, to the role that God has uh, to play in that, to settling that dispute, and to caring for and overseeing the care of those deacons. And see, what the, what the 12 realize is, hey, God has given, given us this role. This is the thing that God has for us. And so we're going to fulfill that role. And they're not distracted by other things, other good things that God has given to others, but isn't for them to to play or to do. And what you and I have to understand is that's true for all of us. Loved one, God has given you a role. You are called to a role. Play your role. Fulfill your ministry. Right out of the gate, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. We're called to a role, but, but let me just say this real quick as well. In as much as you and I are called to a role, I think there's something really freeing that I'm not called to someone else's role. Right? That, that, that God has given you a responsibility. That God has said, this is what I want for you. But you don't have to pay attention. You don't have to focus. You get to focus your attention on that. And I don't have to be burdened. I don't have to be weighed down. I I don't have to be anxious about someone else's role. What do you mean by that? Well, think of, I'll just use myself as an example. Part of my role is to be the pastor of Faith Church, which means I don't have to be the pastor of any other church. Thank God. Right? This is enough work in and of itself. I just have to be the pastor of this church. Now, I can care for other brothers uh, who are in the ministry. Uh, I've served at other churches, but that's not my role. This is the place that God has me. This is what God has entrusted to me. And so I focus on what God has given to me. The same is true for all of us. In fact, Moses, when he writes Psalm 90, do you know Moses wrote a couple of Psalms? Right? Moses in Psalm 90, listen to what he says. This is just so helpful. He says, let your, he's speaking to God, let your work be shown to your servants. He's saying, God, would you show us the work that you have for us? And then he goes on and says, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He's saying, God, you are the one that has work for us. You're the one that's going to establish the work that you have for us. And so we want you to reveal that to us and establish that for us. And so in being called to a role, right, God, would you let your servant see the work that you have for us? Fulfill that role, play your role, and don't worry about anybody else's role. We're called to a role. Secondly, look at verse 2. The second call that we see here, that we're called to a community. 
Right? We're called to a role that plays itself out in a community, that God is calling his people to a distinct community. Here's what God's word says. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Right? We're called to a community. And when you look at the scriptures, oftentimes the biblical language that's used to express the connection that exists between fellow believers is that of familial language. It's that of a family, right? That we're brothers and that we're sisters. That God's calling us into this community. And that becomes really, really important for us to keep in mind and really important for us to remember because we, we live in this day and age where there's this emphasis around hyper-individualistic spirituality, and we're more apt to, d- to disconnect our spirituality from the community that it's meant to be rooted in. And so we disconnect uh, our, our spiritual vitality from being a part of the church. We, we think that we can separate those two. Hey, I can follow Jesus and do it on my own. I can be a Christian and be disconnected from all community. That's not how it should be. Right, a follower of Jesus is meant to be committed to all that Jesus calls them to, part of which is to live and function and, and thrive and participate and share within the biblical community, which is the church. We're called to a corporate entity. Nowhere in the scriptures do you find Jesus or the Spirit or God saying, hey, come follow me and we'll do it by ourselves. He's calling people into a community. Now, there's no shortage There's no shortage of books and blogs and articles and whatnot that is going to encourage you not to the community of faith, but to an individualistic, culturally driven, personal preference oriented approach to your spirituality. Hey, do what works for you. Live your truth. We don't need the church. It's not biblical. It might be comfortable, but it's not biblical. See, what the Bible is going to emphatically drive is the community of God's people. I mean, just think about the Bible as a whole. The vast majority of the Bible is written to corporate entities. It's written to a nation or it's written to the church. And the handful of times that it is written to individuals, almost all of those times, it's written to them about how the corporate entity should function. It very much has a corporate fo- focus to it. And loved ones, we've got, we got to get away from this place and this space where we see the church as something as the, the church exists for me. That is simply about me. Now, at some level, that's true, but, but, but it's far more than that and certainly not less than that. The church is about God. It's about how the people of God rightly worship him, how we walk with him, and how we work for him. That's why the Sunday morning gathering is so important. That's why discipleship is so important. That's why membership is so important. It's how we invest. It's how we love. It's how we serve. It's how we grow with one another toward God. Because God has called us into a community, and God help us that we would invest in that community. Because how do we do this? I'm going to give you four things, four simple ways that I think we can lean into this calling. And let me just tell you, I'm going to be unflinchingly honest about this. I'm not going to pander one bit. Because I think in our current day and age, we, we soft sell this stuff and we're serving nobody in doing that. 
So here you go, four ways that we commit to this uh, calling of community. First of all, commit to being at church. Commit to being at church. Now, now I understand in one sense I'm preaching to the choir because you're here right now. I, I, I get that. But there is this epidemic that, that is um, just raging through our land in how we casually approach the gathering of saints. And so we, we do things like, well, I'll go if I want, I'll go if I feel like it, um, I'll go if I'll say what I want them to say, I'll go if it makes me feel good. And this is the thing, this is really, I think, at the root is this next one. I'll go if I have nothing better. Let me help you with that. I promise you, you have nothing better. See, in short, what we've done is we've removed the urgency and more importantly, we've, we've removed the priority of the gathering of the saints in our lives. And it is killing the next generation of Christians. There's all kinds of stuff out there around fear and panic and people are leaving and, and how do we keep people in the church and what are we going to do? Well, of course people are leaving. It's how we've trained them. It's the culture and the atmosphere that we've built. Because what we've told people over and over and over again is go to church if you feel like it. Go to church if you have nothing better. Go to church if it works for you. I can find things that are more entertaining. I can find things that are more profitable from a humanistic standpoint. And so I just go do those things. And then we're shocked when people walk away from the church. This is what we've, we, we, we've invested in in our culture. Now, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Let's not get legalistic with this. I get it that people get sick. People travel. Right? I was gone last week. I, I'll actually be gone next week. So, so it's not that we can never be in church. The issue that I want to just rage against is this casual approach that this isn't a priority. We've got to put that to death and we're not the only generations that struggle with this. The author of Hebrews tells us this. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You've got to commit to being at church. I think one of the greatest gifts that my mom ever gave to me was she was unflinching in requiring us to come to church. And so there were times where, where uh, you know, she would let us learn the hard way if we stayed up late on Saturday night. Like, oh, mom, I didn't get to. She's like, I don't care. Get up. You'll go to bed earlier next week. And then I went through this phase in middle school where I just didn't want to be at church at all. And so I would try to fake sick. Oh, mom, I think I've got a fever. My mom never did the thermometer thing. She'd just walk up, write the hand on the forehead. You're not warm. Get dressed. <laughs> Mom, my, my stomach's kind of upset. I, I think I might be coming down with something. No joke. This is what she say all the time. Can you prove it? Uh, I want puke in a bucket. Where is it? <laughs> I didn't think so. Get dressed. Just would never let us miss. And I, I, can, I can tell you, it's one of the greatest gifts that my mom ever gave to me. Because she instilled the value and the necessity, necessity and the urgency of the corporate gathering. We commit to being at church. Secondly, commit to discipleship. 
Uh, I talked about announcements, right? This is the life of the church. This is where life happens. And, And not simply commit to being there, but how you're going to be there. That I'm going to show up and engage. That I'm going to show up and be honest and transparent. That I'm going to show up and lay myself out there. I'm going to show up and be held accountable. And I'm going to hold other people accountable. Oh, how we need more of that. That we would commit to discipleship. Thirdly, that you would commit to membership. Now, some of you have been here a week or two. Um, and so I get it. You, you, you want to know a little bit more about the church before you're like, hey, that's kind of a, a hard sell. Uh, let me just say this. I, I am learning more and more just how substantial healthy membership is to a healthy church. And, and how we have to be committed one another, not just so that we can vote on the budget and a couple of other things from time to time, but, but to engage one another and to, to, to hold each other accountable and to sharing life and, and understanding, listen to me, the necessity of church discipline. And if someone is persisting in sin, that the church hold them accountable. And there's a loving community that we would chase that person down. And call them to repentance. And by God's grace, if they repent, we celebrate that. And if they don't, but the difficulty of that, that we would say, hey, listen, you call yourself a Christian. You're not living like a Christian. We're at odds here. Right? Committing to membership, a covenant commitment to one another, not just coming and going as we see fit or what works for me. And then finally, this committing to serve. Right, we're called to a role, and we're going to see this later in 1 Corinthians. But every spiritual gift that's given is meant at some level to build or edify the church. The gifts that God has given you aren't for you to utilize solely for yourself. They're given to you to build his church. And so make a commitment to serve. We embrace our call from God. We're called to a role. We're called to a community. I'll look at verse 3 here for a moment, and then I promise we'll pick it up here. Let me close your eyes. Just close your eyes, and I want you to listen to what Paul is saying here, because so often we just gloss over this. I mean, this is insanity right here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the third thing we see is we're called to grace and peace. And I know we're not explicitly called. He's not using the word call there. But the magnitude of this, that God's grace and God's peace is given to us. It's extended to us. When we talk about grace, it's, 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 not, just, um, it's not just salvation. It's, it's, it's far greater than that, as if that's not great enough. But really, grace is, is a word that's, that's often used as shorthand to capture all of God's blessings, all of God's kindness to his people and his loving care for us. So think of it like this. Did you eat something this morning? And if not, I'm willing to bet you're going to eat something later today. Did you sleep in a bed? Inside a home that has electricity and heat and and, and power, windows and doors, and actually keeps the cold out. Did you you own a Bible? Do you drive a car to church? Do you you have clothes to wear and jackets that keep you warm? All of these are just simple physical material blessings, and we could talk about thousands upon thousands of these. 
And yet God's grace is far bigger, richer, grander, and more glorious than just that. Consider this. If you are in Christ, you've been ransomed from sin. You've been made alive in Jesus. You're spared from God's wrath. You're covered by the righteousness of Christ. You're adopted as sons and daughters of his. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You are being sanctified. One day you're going to be glorified. You're going to dwell in the presence of Jesus. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We are called to grace and peace. And, and man, hopefully, right, we, we go back to that wave and you just begin to feel yourself beginning to get swept away by the fullness and the magnitude and the glories and the riches of all that God has done for us. And if not, it's about to happen because look at verses four through nine. Here we go. Here's the second thing is we thank God for Christ's work. We thank God for Christ's work. Now, now this run-on sentence of Paul, this is super frustrating because it's like, man, how do you break? It's a sentence. Put a period in there for crying out loud. But Paul doesn't like periods, okay? So, so this run-on sentence here, there's a lot going on. It's loaded. L- let me just break it down into two distinct sections that I think will be helpful for us. First of all, verses 4 through 7, we're going to thank God for the riches of his grace. Verses 8 and 9, we're going to thank God for his faithfulness. But let's start with the riches of God's grace. We see a host of different ways that the riches of God's grace is manifested amongst his people. This is really, we're out of the waves, we're into tsunami land with what we're about to see here. Notice this first of all, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. Now, don't miss this. Because this is truly beautiful. Paul is thanking God for this church, this group of people that is a hot mess. This is a train wreck of a church. Paul will spend most of his letter talking about all the ways they're getting it wrong and and all the issues they have and all the ways they need to repent. And yet he's thankful for them. Isn't that awesome? That Paul can look out on this totally messed up, broken, dysfunctional church and go, thank God for you. God, help us. God, help us that we could do the same with one another. That we could look out and one another, we could thank God for the people in our lives. I mean, what a challenge, right? In some sense, it's easy. There are people who are good to us, they're kind to us, they're generous with us, and it's like, well, yeah, it's easy to thank God for those people. What about the people with issues? What about the people that are difficult and obnoxious and annoying and demanding? Can you thank God for them too? That's what Paul's doing, because the first, the, the, the Corinthian church, man, this is, there's not a lot of thankful people in this church to be thankful for, and yet Paul is saying, I thank God always for you. Loved one, look for God's grace in others. Look for God's grace in others. I, I would suggest that would, that would radically alter how you uh, perceive them and view them. And then thank God for others. Right, we thank God for people. Secondly, look at this also in verse 4. We thank God for his grace that is given. And this is really the root of what Paul's excited about. He's, maybe he's just saying, I thank God for you because he's going to change you. Maybe that's what Paul's really getting at. I don't know. Uh, but I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Right, they didn't earn it. He didn't earn it. They didn't prove that they were worthy or deserving of this. It's solely the kindness and the goodness and the grace of God that he bestows his grace upon us. 
Oh, that we would be quick to thank God for this. And then look at verses 5, 6, and 7. I mean, I, we could put 10 bullet points in here, but, but really just capturing it under this idea of we thank God for the riches in Christ's work. L- listen to what he says. Verse 5, that in every way you're enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 6, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Verse 7, so you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's this richness. We're enriched in knowledge and speech. We're, we're, We're confirmed in our testimony of Christ. He gives us all spiritual gifts as we wait for Christ to be revealed. We thank God for the riches in Christ's work. Loved one, when's, when's the last time that you've just poured yourself out in gratitude and thanksgiving to God for his goodness and the richness of his kindness towards you? When's the last time that you've just thrown yourself into the riches of God and fully expressed that to him? In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table and you might need to do that then maybe you want to do that when you go home maybe you're like man i'm going to just call time out on the sermon and i'm going to do it in this moment and this space but we thank god for the riches in christ's work and in as much as this obvious application is so clearly here i think there's another application that's really crucial both for the corinthian church and also for you and i So you have to remember the Corinthians lived in a society very much like your society and my society, where there's this huge emphasis on on, on social approval, on social status, and we've got to climb the ladder, and I'm identified by how much money I have or what I do or how nice my home is or all the other garbage that, uh, that, that, that we play with. And you could argue that a lot of what's at the root of the Corinthians' issues are those things. And yet, right at the outset of the letter, what does Paul want to establish? He wants to establish for the Corinthians. He wants to reinforce for the Corinthians that their identity isn't wrapped up in what they do or what they have or who they are. It's wrapped up in their identity in Christ. That's what he's pushing them towards. That, that, that all of who they are is tied solely to who Jesus says they are. That Jesus gets to define who they are in the same way that Jesus gets to define who you are, not anybody else. And the ascription of worth and value with respect to your life is derived from the Savior, not from anyone or anything else. Stephen Um in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says this about these verses. He says, Christ's work on their behalf is more foundational to their identity than their ability to sully it with their failings. Isn't that beautiful? See, what makes this so rich is the freedom we find wrapped up in the identity of Christ. They say, man, even in all your shortcomings, even in all your failures, all the ways that you've blown this, because of what Christ has done, what he says about you is what's true of you. Praise God for that. We thank God for the riches of his grace. Finally, this, we thank God for his faithfulness. And so this subtle shift that happens between uh, verse 7 and verse 8, not so much, not that it's not part of Christ's work or the riches of his grace, but we see this uh, more of an emphasis around the faithfulness of God. Three things here in verse 8 and 9 that I want to highlight real quick. 
First of all, look at verse 8. He says, who will sustain you to the end? We thank God that he's going to sustain us. And not for a season and not for a time and not until we quit being good or not until we use up all our bad boy credits and then we're out. But he's going to sustain us to the end. And so even though you fail and even though you continue to fail and you will constantly fail until Christ comes back or until you die. Jesus won't fail. He will be faithful. And God will sustain us. This is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. And he says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. We thank God that he's going to sustain us. Secondly, I mean, this is just, this one's insane. Who will sustain you to the end. Circle, underline, highlight. I don't care what you do. Just do it for that next word. Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank God that he makes us guiltless in Jesus. I don't know about you. There's not a lot of, well, not a lot of times in my life that I feel guiltless. But that is what is true of me. And that is what is true of us because of Christ that we're guiltless. And he's not talking about, hey, I've attained to this place of conduct and behavior that I don't sin anymore. That's not going to happen. He's talking about here what is often referred to in theological uh, terms as imputed righteousness. This means that Jesus gives us his righteousness. That the righteousness of Christ belongs to us. It's not that we're righteous in and of ourselves. It's not that we earn the righteousness. It's that Jesus' righteousness is given to us. In fact, Paul says this, look at uh, verse 30 of chapter 1. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul's saying, because of what Christ has done, this is what you are. And so here's what this means. If you are in Christ, if you can look to a time in your life where you've turned from sin and towards Christ, if you are in Christ, then when God looks at you, he does not see your failure. He does not see your sin. He does not see your depravity. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And it's not because he's blind. See, in the gospel, when we put our faith in Jesus, part of that transaction is that Jesus gives us his righteousness. And he doesn't give us a little bit of it. He doesn't give us some of it. He doesn't parse it out piece by piece. He gives us all of it in its full measure. And it's not temporary. It's not conditional. There's no expiration or limitation to it. He gives us the fullness of it. Irrespective. Listen to me. Irrespective of what has characterized you up until that point. I mean, this has been the dilemma of humanity since the fall in Genesis 3. What do I do with my sin? What do I do with the fact that I'm separated from God? What do I do with the fact that I'm alienated from God? How how can I be restored? How can I be made right? How can I possibly come back into the presence of God? You confess your sin to God. You put your trust in Jesus. Understanding that he's going to forgive you of your sin and you surrender your life to him. That's the beauty of this. And Paul is writing to arguably the most dysfunctional church in all of the scriptures. And he's saying, you're 
guiltless because God has placed the righteousness of Christ upon you. There is no better news, loved ones. In a moment, we're going to sing in Christ alone. And towards the end of that song, here's, here's the line. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. See, no guilt in life. That's what Christ does for us. There's no fear in death because I'm guiltless. And now with confidence, I can go before God at the judgment seat because I know he's not going to judge me for who I am. He's going to judge me under the righteousness of Christ. Thank God that he makes us guiltless in Jesus. Finally, this verse nine, look what he says here. God is faithful. You think, Paul? I mean, like understatement of all time. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank, that, we thank God that we're called into fellowship. That God calls us into fellowship with his son, that we're called into relationship with Christ. While today we experience this in part, a day's coming where we're going to experience this in full and totality. So Revelation 21 talks about we're going we're to live in the neighborhood or Jesus is going to move into the neighborhood. Be a far better neighbor than any neighbor you've ever had. Even if you've had good neighbors, I promise Jesus will be a better neighbor. And that will be our existence for all of eternity. As we think about these things, I mean, just, just think about all that Paul has said and all of the implications and all of the ways that this, this, this plays out in our life. Right, The riches of God's grace, that he gives us grace, the riches of Christ's work, that he's going to sustain us, that we're guiltless, that we have fellowship with him. And I hope that what the Spirit is doing is you're just carried away by this wave of God's goodness. And that for us, as we look at this, that Jesus becomes greater and sweeter and more treasured because of the unmatched glory that's found in him. And what Paul is telling the sinful, rebellious, messed up Corinthians, he's telling us, this is who God is, this is what Christ has done, and therefore this is what this means for you. And it's stunning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, God, I... I just pray we'd be overwhelmed at the fullness of all that you've done for us. God, I'll confess that far too often I become inoculated to these truths. I I, I fail to recognize the magnitude and and, and the, the intensity and the severity and the depth and the profound nature of them. And so thank you for your word. Thank you for reminders. Thank you for pointing us back to these truths. And God, we pray that as as, as we consider these, that we would worship, that we would uh, glory in you, that we we, we would celebrate you, that we would magnify you. Living in the fullness of all that you are. And so God, be worshiped, be glorified, have your way with your people. We love you and we pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.